Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Thursday, February 11th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe. Uh, coming up today on the podcast is a interview I recorded last week with the head women's basketball coach at Washington and Lee, uh, Christine Clancy. Really, really fun uh, conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, they're trying to play this season, and so it's just really interesting to get her perspective on what it's like day-to-day inside a college athletics program that is trying to play right now. Uh, and I, don't know, I, I found it super, super interesting, uh, and uh, I hope you guys do as well. So I'm going to hit the music, and when we come back is my interview from last week with Coach Clancy. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, the head women's basketball coach at Washington Lee University, Christine Clancy. She was a dual sport athlete at Brandeis University in the UAA, where she played both basketball and tennis, and she was a three-time All-UAA basketball team member. She began her coaching career at Smith College, where she was an assistant for two seasons before going to Colby College. She was named the interim head coach at Colby for the 2010-2011 season, where the Mules went 22-6 and and reached the second round of the NCAA tournament. The following year, she joined the staff at Washington Lee, where she was assist for one season before being promoted and named head coach. In her eight years at the helm, Coach Clancy has led the Generals to a 114-96 record. I'm thrilled she's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? It's going all right. How are you doing? You know, hanging in there, we had a major snowstorm up here in the Northeast, so the snow is now melting. Thankfully, as in New York, it turns all to slush, but uh, can't really complain. Yeah, it's that's the the beauty of moving down south is Virginia. Um, we did get some of the snow, but it usually melts really quickly, which I appreciate. Yes, for sure. So, as you mentioned, you're you're down in Virginia. You know, colleges in Virginia are facing the exact same thing that colleges and university around the country are, which is the pandemic, the ongoing pandemic. And each school in each region of the country, in each town, is doing something slightly different or very different depending on the campus, the state, factors that no one even had to consider before March 2020. So what is Washington and Lee's you know, plan uh, for the spring 2021 semester? Yeah, so we have um, all of our students back on campus with the exception of uh, a small number of students who decide to stay home and go all virtual, Um, but everyone else is on campus. Uh, We're holding classes um, virtually, hybrid, and in person, just kind of depending on the faculty member leading the class, so students Mm -hmm. kind of have a mix of virtual classes and in-person classes. Uh, Athletically, we're we're trying to compete. Um, we're trying to, to play a, a conference schedule in, in basketball. Um, we're trying to have a spring season for our spring sports that lost it last season, um, but trying to keep all competition within the state of Virginia and within our conference. So mm-hmm. um, we're still having an opportunity to, to play our sports, uh, practice our sports, and we, we haven't had any actual competition to this point because of um, the pandemic and, and cases on campus. So uh, we're still holding out some hope, but 
just living day by day. <laughs> yeah. And so what's what's unique about the ODAC and Washington Lee is that a lot of conferences, a lot of schools have just, you know, they, they've, they've opted out of competition this, this year because of all the logistical challenges, the pressing COVID issues. But you guys have, even though you haven't been able to compete yet, have games on the schedule. And so that's very, you know, it feels weird to say rare for February or early February to say, wow, they have games to play potentially. What is like the planning that goes into, because so much time has been spent on either, hey, this they're not playing, this school's out, or this school's playing and they're just following COVID quote-unquote protocols. But I feel like people don't actually know what the COVID protocols really are. So so can you kind of go into all of the stuff that yeah. that, that is really goes into like what, what you're saying about like trying to compete this year? Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot. Um, so for one thing is, <laughs> Uh, to follow NCAA guidelines, basketball is, is considered a high-risk sport, um, high risk of transmission. So we have to test our athletes three times a week. Um, so myself and my, my student-athletes or managers, we're getting tested Monday, Wednesday, Friday, every week. And um, everyone in our conference is doing, that's still opted into the schedule is doing the same. So that's just kind of the starting point. Um when we're talking about trying to play games, there's so much logistical stuff that I, I don't think people have ever really thought about. If you've watched, you know, the NBA, the WNBA, D1 games on TV, you've seen the benches and how they're all um, set up socially distanced. So trying to figure out how that layout works in your gym, um, how it works in uh, like opposing teams, gyms, mm -hmm. what to do about locker rooms, what, how officials have to come in, officials all have to arrive before the game and get tested, have a rapid test, mm -hmm. and then assuming they're negative, then they can come into the building. But I know for, for us, we have mapped out exactly like what hallways a visiting team will be in, what hallway the officials will be in, what stairwell they'll be coming up, what stairwell right. our home teams are coming up where a meeting space can be, where there's enough room for a team to be in there and spread out. So it's, it, it's not just show up and play a basketball game right, right now. It's, it's a lot of just little administrative logistics of, um, you know, just trying to keep everyone safe and, um, you know, and then we're, we're following rules that we have in place on our campus. And I decided with my team that, if we're going to practice and compete, we're going to wear masks all the mm -hmm. time. Um, just oh, to, wow. <laughs> which <laughs> I don't know that they're always a fan of, but um, we want to be as safe as possible. And, and I want to make sure that my athletes stay as healthy as possible. So mm -hmm. it's just a protection extra step that we're taking to just, you know, navigate yeah. this whole thing and keep our community safe. Yeah. The, when, when you talk to people like you who are in it or, or other people around the country, it's, the easiest thing of to figure out to play during this pandemic is like the part of what you see on the screen with your watching the game, yeah. which is the socially distant benches. Cause you know, you measure it out. It's, you know, you move the bleachers back. That's like the easiest part. But the hardest yeah. part is as you're saying like, wait, what hallway can we go down? Wait, we're going to travel. Like how do we get there? Cause the safest COVID way would be to take 20 individual cars. Everyone travels on their own. <laughs> But, like, that's unrealistic because, like, what, you're going to drive eight – every kid's going to drive eight hours there and back, hotels, all, all that stuff. Can you just kind of talk about just how stressful 
your days are because not just are you reimagining and re basically rewriting the rules on how, not just how to run a university, but also just how to run an athletic season. But is there just like the f- constant fear of every ding on your phone or every email you get is so-and-so tested positive. We're not playing like how stressful is your just day-to-day life? Yeah, it's, um, it's extremely stressful. It's, it's, uh, and we've, we've had kind of a, a crazy couple of weeks. Um, my student athletes only came back on January 12th was the first day that we practiced. Mm-hmm. Um, but since then we've had three student athletes that had to go into quarantine because oh, wow. a roommate had tested positive. Yeah. So at the time it was like, well, they're going to miss our first, first game that we're scheduled to enable to play. Um, and then during that quarantine time, we, we got a notification from our campus that we had had a, a pretty large number of cases on campus. And so they were moving us to sort of the red zone and suspending all, putting a pause on all contests and athletic practices. So we were literally on the court in the middle of a practice when this announcement oh, wow. came out and had to stop practicing. Um, and then over the next couple of days, they, they, they sort of said, okay, well you can, you can practice, um, but no like live contact to try to mitigate any close contacts. And then we eventually got approved to, to full out practice. So it's just been, it's, it's a lot, like Mm. it's changing constantly. Um, it's really hard for my student athletes to kind of figure out you know, what they're training for, um, you know, because we, we, like I said, we, so when they put us on pause, it was a a Wednesday, uh, last Wednesday actually. And we were supposed to travel to our first game on Sunday. So we were just kind of turning the corner to really start thinking and talking about actually playing a game and an opponent and what that means. And, um, and then it just, was like nope that's not happening right right so it's it's um it's a lot to navigate it's it's really challenging i don't think people understand when they're hearing things on on tv about d1 teams that are on pause or having Mm -hmm. a player sit out i don't think people realize how hard that is mentally on the entire program but also um how hard it is physically to stop and start um is really challenging to know we were, I was talking with my captains yesterday and it's like, we're like, everyone is in a mentally different place. Yeah. And also everyone's in a physically different place. Some people feel great and they could, you know, be ready to play a game tomorrow. And some people really are not physically there yet. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's challenging. For sure. For sure. So we're going to, we're going to work uh, backwards. Now we, uh, you know, happier hopefully less stressful times talk can can you yeah. talk oh can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and kind of just how you fell in love with sports and the game of basketball sure yeah so i grew up in yarmouth maine which is very close to ll bean and portland um small town and i i basically was playing every sport every and any sport that i could as as a kid um all the way through high school so i was playing um 
soccer and softball and tennis and basketball and um, I would golf and mm-hmm. just a little bit of everything. <laughs> so I, I just always loved being active and involved uh, with teams and competing in any way that I could. Um, but basketball was the sport that I just gravita- gravitated to the most. Um, mm-hmm. I think kind of ironically because I think I might have been better if I had stuck with soccer. I was a goalkeeper. <laughs> uh-huh. um, I might have been a little bit better if I had really dug into swimming. <laughs> but I like basketball. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it's just, you know, just it's a sport where you get to do everything, right? Yeah. Like you get to, um, you know, when I was playing soccer and I was a goalie, it, if we weren't completely outmatched, I was really bored just kind of standing around watching the game. So I, I wasn't a huge fan of that. Um, and but basketball, you, you got to defend, you got yeah. to play offense, you're in constant action when you're on the floor. And, and to be fair, in Maine, it is cold most of the year. So yep. not being super active on a soccer field with the wind and, you know, early starts, yep. late starts, sunsetting, I've been, it, it can get chilly. Yes, <laughs> absolutely not. Not a fun place to be. And then you're, you know, you're cold, and you're you're only getting about ten shots. Yeah. A game, and if you if you make one mistake, you could lose the game for your right. team. It's, it's just a, it's a. You have to be a special kind of person to to really want to do that. And yeah. It was just not me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so while you're in in high school. Were you still sticking with multiple sports? Kind of just what's the re- recruiting process like uh, coming from such a small town in, in Maine? And, and kind of how did you end up choosing Brandeis? Yeah, so I'm not a typical story. Um, I, I did in high school, I played soccer in the fall, basketball in the winter, and tennis in the spring. And then uh, for a couple of years, I, I pay, played um, some like senior league softball on the side in the spring too, because I was just wanted to do a little extra. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I was playing a lot of different sports. I played some AAU basketball, but it was a local team, and we we would play like one out-of-state tournament a year, mm-hmm. like a small, small tournament in the Boston area. So I didn't really get um, – a lot of, I didn't have a lot of visibility as a as a player right um, so I wasn't really being recruited by people um, I mean University of Southern Maine reached out to me like and by reached out I mean they sent me a form letter <laughs> and I think Keene State sent me a form letter um, you know I, I think the only reason I got noticed at all was because I was six feet tall and mm-hmm. you can't teach tall so right, right. <laughs> So I really wasn't being recruited, and honestly, myself, my parents, my coaches, like, we didn't know what the recruiting process was or how it worked with D3 at all. Mm-hmm. We had really no idea. So I, I just did one of the classic, like, guidance counselors. You take a little test, answer some questions, and it pops out, like, reach schools, good right. fits, and backup school kind of list, and we just went through and, and started visiting those schools, and... Um, I visited Brandeis and I liked it a lot. I think it's going to sound really stupid, but one of the things I loved about Brandeis was they have a dorm mm-hmm. at Brandeis that's a castle. 
Okay, yes. And so I was like, wow, I could live in a castle. That sounds <laughs> cool. I'm, I'm sold. Yes. Um, so that really is a, a strange way to, to kind of fall fall in love with a school, but that's, look, that's sort of how it started. Look, the, the way that people choose colleges doesn't make any sense. Like the Like they always yeah. say that the key determinant factor is the weather on the day that you visited. So you could have gone to your perfect school – but if it rained at Harvard that day, it's like, ah, I yeah. didn't want to go because it was raining. Like nothing yeah. makes sense about the college search. Yeah, it, it really doesn't. And, um, but I, I liked it. It was the favorite, my favorite school that I mm-hmm. visited. And so I reached out to, um, the coach, Carol Simon, she's still there, um, today as the coach. And I, I went back and I met with her and, both so my mom and I went there it was a terrible time for me to go ultimately because I had just played in my I think it was my senior day soccer game Mm -hmm. um and I was going out for a high ball and a couple of players took me out at the legs and I flipped over and landed on my head um and so I was all like my muscles were all (laughs) Like, I, can't, I couldn't really turn my head without my <laughs> killing me. So I was, like, super stiff uh-huh. and very quiet and, sh- quiet and shy. Um, so my mom did most of the talking when right. we met with Carol. Um, and my mom likes to tell the story that all I said was I play defense. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, Carol, for some reason, again, probably because I'm tall, mm-hmm. um, stayed in touch uh, and I I was like I I like it here I uh, basically I decided going in as long as I liked the coach I was going to hand in and at at that time like physically hand in my written application Mm -hmm. for early decision yeah (laughs) so I met her I (laughs) walked over to admissions (laughs) turned in my application um her assistant at the time, uh, Anthony Ewing, came and watched me play, um, which another kind of funny story is, it, as it turns out, Anthony was um, best friends growing up with one of my cousin's husbands. Oh, wow. So when he came to watch me play, right afterwards, he went to go grab a, a beer with basically my cousin. <laughs> they didn't connect the dots right of course no of course not yeah so um until until i ended up getting in and then we we're like wow that's what 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 a what a coincidence right but, right but i guess when they came to see me play i did enough for them to to take a chance on a gangly six foot kid from maine so. right now now what was the process like because you also played tennis at brandeis what so that was the basketball process but but kind of how did you kind of become a dual sport athlete yeah I I guess my whole story is is kind of kind of weird um so I played my first year just played basketball Mm -hmm. um and having been that three sport athlete um who was just constantly playing sports my whole life I was feeling kind of kind of bored after the basketball season ended um so when I went home for the summer I started playing tennis again and like played in just some small local tournaments and I was like you know what I'll just uh shoot an email to the tennis coach and just see if 
it's a possibility for me to play. Mm. Um, and I didn't hear anything until the day that I got back to campus my sophomore year. I got a call, and it was from the assistant coach on the tennis team. So I had already – I mean, I didn't hear anything back. I was like, yeah. okay, that's not happening. I would kind of forgotten about it. And last minute she was like – why don't you come out to the courts and hit with me and we'll see. And, <laughs> and so I ended up going out to the courts, hitting with her. And, and then I had to talk to Carol, my, my basketball coach and see if it was okay she was cool, um, yeah. to, to do it. Um, and she, I don't know if it was I probably reluctantly said, yeah, I guess so. As long as basketball is your priority, mm-hmm. um, which it was. And it, it really tennis overlapped with basketball in the fall by like two days. Yeah. And then I was just basketball until I was done with, Mm -hmm. with basketball. So I really pretty much played about two and a half years of, of tennis at Brandeis. Gotcha. My, my senior year after basketball season, I was just physically done. Mm -hmm. Like I I can't, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm not a good enough tennis player to, (laughs) to warrant pushing through the pain at that point. So, so during my recruitment period, you know, I was fortunate enough I got to be recruited by a few schools in the UAA, and one of their biggest selling points is uh, the conference, right? It's a not only is it a great academic conference, good athletic programs, the geographic part. So for just, just for any listeners who don't know, the UAA has Brandeis is you know right right outside of Boston, it has Rochester, Emory, which you know. Uh, down in Georgia, for people who who don't know, Chicago, WashU, St. St. Louis, for non-geography buffs out there, very, very, very spread out all around the country. So you fly to all the games. And that was always one of the biggest, you know, during the recruiter, like, hey, we get to fly. Isn't this great? Being an athlete at one of these schools with the airplane travel, was it, was there a coolness factor or was it just like a hassle, like dealing with the TSA and delays and just like, you just got sick of it? And I, I personally, I loved it. Uh-huh. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, it, there were definitely challenges with it, but it was, you know, we, I think until my junior or senior year, we got stuck with a couple of snowstorms right. and got one year we got stuck in Atlanta and one year we got stuck, um, at Carnegie Mellon mm-hmm. in, in Pittsburgh. So, um, but, uh, and, and Carol said those were the, that was the first time she had ever had that issue. Wow. And she had been coaching there, um, for quite a while at uh-huh. that point. So, um, so we didn't have too many hassles, but, mm-hmm. It was fun. I mean, we would take off on a on a Thursday. Yeah. Um, fly to you know, let's say we were going to Chicago and wash you, so we'd we'd fly to Chicago on a Thursday, do a shoot around Friday morning at at University of Chicago, have some free time during the day, and then go play that evening, and then you'd um, get up and and fly to St. Louis on Saturday morning and then have a practice and then play on Sunday and then turn around and come back. So mm-hmm. it was, it was kind of fun. We always had a little bit of time to explore the cities. Yeah. Um, 
So I I enjoyed it. I, and my my aunt and uncle live outside of Chicago, so it was a opportunity to see them, and they got to come in and, and watch watch me play a little bit, which was not something I would have expected. Yeah, it, the, the the travel part it always seemed you know really cool to me, and something as you said, exploring different parts of the country, d- different cities. It seemed more of a, a of a hassle and difficult for the assistant coaches, making sure everyone mm-hmm. had their flight information, sitting together, all of the logistical stuff. What was your, you know, plane routine? Everyone on planes is different. Were you a napper, a sleeper? Were you doing homework? Like, what was your plane routine? Um, I, I just, I am incapable of napping. So I would, <laughs> um, I have my, I think, well, I don't know if for all of, the, all of the years, but at some point there, I got a portable DVD player. And so I'd, I'd be watching movies. There we go. Um, that was, that was pretty much my go-to. There we go. Um, and I mean, we, we wouldn't start, I can't even remember. We had a really long break between our fall semester and our winter semester. So mm-hmm. Like we would usually have at least one of those trips, if not two of those trips, before classes started. Oh, beautiful! So that made it super relaxing and easy yeah. <laughs> when you're traveling and you don't have any schoolwork. So it's exactly, kind of hang out. What was fun was to see who you ended up staying next to because yeah. it wasn't always the same. Um, and we would travel with the men's team, mm-hmm. which um, which was fun too, uh, especially my my freshman year. Chris Ford, um, NBA player, NBA coach, uh, was the, the head men's coach at Brandeis my, my freshman year. Mm-hmm. So traveling through the Boston airport with Chris Ford, people would recognize him. <laughs> and so they thought we were a way bigger deal than we actually were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now, you know, you're, you're at Brandeis, really good school. Really, really smart kids. I'm sure, you know, pe- people from Brandeis go on to do a whole different bunch of different things. I just graduated college myself. It's kind of this, it's this rite of passage you go through as, as a college student. It, it feels like of freakouts in a way of like, is this what I'm going to do? Oh my God. No, I'm going to change to this. Oh my God. None of my classes are going to help me get a job. Oh, like, just like, you know, the normal freak out college. What am I going to do with my life thing? Did that ever happen to you while you were at Brandeis and just kind of just what was your uh, career focus during college or was it always, you know, focusing on, on coaching? Well, I think when I when I got there and I was a, a econ major, mm-hmm. um, I sort of thought that I wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps and he was he was a CPA and financial guy. But really, if I'm being honest, I wanted to do that because. I saw all the hookups he got with like sports tickets. <laughs> like he just worked with a lot of banks. So yeah. he would get like tickets to Red Sox games, right. Celtics and Bruins and like great seats. And I was like, I can do that. That seems like <laughs> a great job. Um, I'm not sure that's really the motivation. You should have. <laughs> and I don't think I understood all the, you know, what he actually did. Right. Um, but once I got to Brandeis and for me and and people talk about how representation really matters and for Mm -hmm. me it's so true like i had a female coach um who you know was living comfortably like she was i could tell that she was making enough money to 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 live a good life and Mm -hmm. um so i just 
all of a sudden I realized that coaching at the college level was a career option and it wasn't something that I had ever considered before. I just didn't see it as, as a, as a job or a path. Um, but seeing her, uh, made me realize that that was an option. And then I just loved, I mean, I fell in love hard with division three basketball. I loved it. Um, I loved how competitive it was. I loved that we could have the balance of being students and, you know, that I even had the opportunity to play a second sport um, made me just really want to stay in Division III. Um, and then when when I was a senior, well, was it a senior? I guess, yeah, when I was a senior, when I was playing tennis, we had so many different coaches over my, I think I had three different head coaches oh, wow. in the two and a half years that I played. Wow. Um, so it's hard to keep track of when they all came in. <laughs> Um, but one of the coaches I worked with, she had um, gone through the, the Smith grad program, um, which is where I ended up going to grad school, and she talked to me about that coaching program, um, and she was really the reason that I you know, applied there and ended up going to Smith um, to pursue coaching. So it all kind of fell into place for right. me, so I never really had the freak out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also pretty laid back and just wanted to play basketball. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> in college, so. Now, you know, you, you so, so you graduate from college, you're at Smith, you're now a coach. Can you talk about that adjustment from being player to coach? Because it's difficult for a lot of people to, because it's a completely different mindset, it's a completely different role on the game. Can you, can, can you kind of talk about what that adjustment was like for you going from player to coach? Yeah, it was, um, I think because of the Smith program that I was in, it was a pretty smooth transition. I think it would have been a lot harder if I had just gone to be an assistant coach and not had a grad program and, and um, peers to kind of go through the process with. Um, so the the grad program, it's 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 designed specifically for people who want to get into um, women's college coaching. I mean, it Mm -hmm. is a very directed program. So um, I just think that really helped because I had a peer group right away that we were going to classes together. So we were learning about coaching and coaching at the same time. Yeah. Um, And I think that really allowed me to – dig into like what it means, you know, really learn what it means to be a coach and all the different uh, dimensions of coaching and have um, these peers that are going through it with me that I can talk to and and learn from their experiences with their teams. And so that collaboration piece, um, all of it, I think, helped me transition a lot easier. Um, I think if I had skipped ahead and gone straight to, to being the assistant at, at Colby, which I, I went mm-hmm. to after Smith, that would have been a lot harder for me because right. my job there was basically just basketball. Yeah. Um, so if I was just thinking basketball all the time, <laughs> I think I would have really missed playing more than, than I did. So I, I was really grateful to have that kind of learning transition. And as an assistant coach at the Division three level, Usually these staffs are, or not usually, almost every Division three 
basketball staff is way smaller than a Division One staff naturally. Not as many resources. You know, you don't have the millions of dollars to get twelve assistant coaches and forty five managers and and all that stuff. Division three coach assistant coaches do a lot of recruiting. They do a lot of player development. They do everything, but specifically with recruiting, Smith being an all women's college, did that kind of change or affect your guys's recruiting strategy whether you had to cast a wider net uh you had to really just encourage people to to come on campus and see what it was like 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 how did the uh being all women's college kind of how did that affect the way that you guys went out and recruited yeah i mean it was definitely challenging it's it's something that um you know i i couldn't tell you what the percentage is but there are definitely a, a high number of women that as soon as you say it's an all women's college are like, no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it definitely has its challenge, but that being said, every, every school does, mm-hmm. um, have their own kind of challenge. Um, so yeah, I mean, you definitely had to cast the wider net. I, I worked, um, I was there for, I was at Smith for two years mm-hmm. and I worked with two different coaches. So one who retired after my first year and then Lynn Hersey, who's, uh, the head coach now yeah um and it was her first year in that role so it was kind of a a weird time to come in in terms of recruiting yeah because we were changing staffs and and that first year i was there i didn't really start up until um until the beginning of the academic year Mm. so it was a little bit on the tail end of that recruiting cycle yeah um and then the next recruiting cycle, we were, we had just hired a new coach, so I was right, trying right. to figure out what, what she wants. So it, was, <laughs> it was not a, a normal recruiting yeah, experience right. at Smith. But yeah. um, Lynn Hersey at Smith has done a phenomenal job with that program, and she's, she has figured out um, how, how to recruit successfully there. So mm-hmm. Yeah, it, um, it, the re- recruiting to Smith or Wellesley reminds me kind of of how the military academies have to recruit, which is not only do you have to find super, super smart kids who can also play high-level college basketball, but then also who want to do either for the military schools who are who want to do the military service component and then for the all-women schools, which is go to a all-girls college. It's just something different, and I find that what you get is when you talk to people who coach at those different types of schools is that the bond is on those teams are really, really close. Not saying that they're closer than other schools, but it adds an, an element of we all really chose to do this thing specifically over other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, I loved, it's kind of funny. I don't going into college. I would have been one of those people who said, absolutely not. I yeah. don't want to go to an all woman school. Um, but then being at Smith for two years, I was really impressed with with what kind of an experience those students could have. Yeah. Um, it was a really empowering space, and I learned a lot. It pushed me a lot in um, broadening my perspectives. Um, it was really the kind of thing that the, a sheltered <laughs> person like myself needed to just um, to be ready to... to to really guide um, a diverse set of young women mm-hmm. in in my role as a coach, so it was kind of the perfectly timed adventure for me. Right, right. So, 
after two years at Smith, you get to go to Colby College. You're, you're back in Maine. And so Colby plays in the NESCAC, which is, in my biased opinion, coming from a NESCAC school, is the preeminent uh, Division three basketball conference on the men's and women's side. And specifically on the women's side, the traditional top three powers are, just for any listeners who don't know, are Bowdoin, Tufts, and Amherst. And they're just not usually winning the conference, but they're dominating the conference and usually like three of the top eight teams nationally. So what was that like adjusting to just NESCAC play where you can have an incredible, awesome season like you guys did when you were in your second year as being an assistant, you go 24 and five, but like you're potentially not even the best team in your conference. If you go 24 and five, like, like how hard of, of, of an adjustment was that to just like to compete in the NESCAC on the women's side, you have to be a national power. Like, like what's that like as a coach's mindset when you're like, you're not just trying, you know, trying to do the best that you can, but like, we have to be one of the best in the country to just compete in the tournament. Yeah. And that's where I think my experience playing at Brandeis really helped and Mm -hmm. my experience in the UAA because, um, you know, I, I feel really lucky that I have both UAA and NESCAC experience because those are the, in, in my completely biased opinion, the, the top two conferences um, in basketball in the country. So I think that, you know, having played at that level um, helped me adjust because when I was at Smith, um, the teams were not very good. So mm-hmm. it was, <laughs> coaching wise, it was a pretty big shock to go from where I was at Smith to where we were um, headed at Colby um, and playing against NESCAC schools. <laughs> um at that level so um coaching wise it was it was a little bit of an adjustment of like yeah. okay now we're talking about like top level players here top level programs uh you gotta be on your game you gotta be on your scout game yeah um and be really sharp with 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 that and being really prepared um every night when you're going into games you can't just walk in and play mm-hmm. in that league um so it was it was a really fun challenge just knowing you're going into a battle, you know, most every night in that league. Because yeah. even even the the bottom of the NESCAC, those are still some really good teams. Yeah, and, um, and so there's just no easy win. And and I've been fortunate enough. I've had Coach Pace on and Coach Scheibels, and 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 they talk about like during the season they know even if they're playing a team that that they're going to beat basically if they get off the bus, uh, that it's all about standard building and thinking in their head, Hey, we can't let these things go because later in the season, this team is going to, it's going to take advantage of, of that weakness or lack of execution. What's that like throughout the season when you guys are really good the way that you were, uh, you know, firstly, when you were an assistant coach and then later the, the interim coach of, Hey, we're really, really good. Like what's, what's that like to then, as you said, from being at Smith where, you know, the team was, was weaker when you're at Colby. And now that you're really good, like, like how do you keep coaching hard knowing that, Hey, we can lose potentially by a lot to other really good teams because they're going to take advantage of our weaknesses. Yeah. And I think that's where, um, you know, Coach Scheibel's Coach Pace could could talk about it a little differently. When yeah. I was at Colby, we were going from bottom of and middle of the pack to top of the pack. Um, mm-hmm. So 
in that way, I think it was a lot easier to keep our players focused and right. like because they hadn't been um, they hadn't been in that top group. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were still trying to fight to get that respect to say yes, we are one of the best in, in this conference. Yeah. Um, so they were really um, on a mission every night to prove that they kind of had that underdog chip on their shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really have the experience of I mean. Coach Scheibel's at, at Bowdoin has done an incredible job with that program, yeah. and they are always good. And so maintaining that level um, is is something that they have to talk about and think about and, and be about all the time. And we were, we were just trying to reach that level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in that way, it was a little bit different. Um, and it, it really – it wasn't hard <laughs> to keep them motivated because they didn't feel like they had earned it yet. Gotcha. Gotcha. So the following year, you know, you guys got to go 24 and five, you make the tournament the following year, year you're named the interim head coach. And this is talked about more in the professional level, but just like how that, how that interim tag kind of hangs over these, these coaches and it kind of just, Sometimes it's extra motivation. Sometimes it's just an annoying thing to have to be kept keeping asked about, like, hey, do you want to be here? Do you want to be here? But just for you, what was the experience like of being not technically the head coach, but the interim head coach? Like, does that add something extra after every win? Are you kind of peeking into the athletic director's office like, hey, look at this. We're, we're winning. You know, I should be here long term. Like, like, what is the interim coach experience like? Yeah, it's it's a tough position to be in. Um, it's it, it does feel like uh, it did feel like I was constantly trying to prove myself for sure. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think I tried to own the role and just you know be the head coach and and just try to push and and do the best that I could with my team and you know try to maintain that competitive level that we had established um, in the prior year. Mm-hmm. Um, which was hard because yeah. we had set a pretty high bar the year before, right. and to try to maintain that was was challenging. Um, you know, I think at that time I was pretty confident in my basketball knowledge and mm-hmm. ability to coach the game, scout the game, and manage the game. Um, but looking back, I had no idea what I was doing with the rest of it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I you know, you think you know it all when you're when you're younger and that, you know, you, when you're an assistant coach, all you want to be is a head coach. Right. And then as soon as you step into that role, you're like, why did I want this? <laughs> <laughs> There's so much more here that I didn't, you know, I thought I had the answers to that. Right. I just, I don't. Well, um, well, so I, it was interesting. Well, I know that you won't want to say it, but just, you know, just, you could go, anyone go deetherhoops.com. Look at the last 10 years at Colby and the last 10 years of Washington Lee. And, you know, you can make your own decision, but, you know, one worked out really well, has been doing way better than the other. That's that's the way that I'll leave it. So, unfortunately, you don't get the, the Kobe job. You go to Washington Lee one season as, as an assistant coach. Then you're named the head coach for the Washington Lee. Now you get to really build a program for yourself. You're, you're the head coach. And people use this word culture a lot and my brother you know makes fun of me when he listens to his podcast like you're doing a war on culture I said, it's not a war on culture culture is this word in my opinion that people throw out 
without understanding that culture's definition changes from person to person, team to team, organization to organization, because the Golden State Warriors culture is very different than the New England Patriots culture, but they both win a lot or have won a lot. So one, do you guys use the word culture when talking about your program? And, and you know, what do you define your culture as if you do use it? Yeah, I, I mean, I got to say this year we've used the word a lot because we haven't really had the the, the normal competition um, kind of schedule. Like in the fall, we knew we weren't going to play any games at all in the fall. Um, so we just focused on us and we de- we definitely threw out the culture word a yeah. lot during that time. I would say um, I it, the the culture is a is a constantly changing, constantly moving thing. Mm-hmm. And I think as a younger head coach, I thought, you know, I just got to come in. I've got to establish um, how I want this program to to run, and then I'm golden, right? Like I, it just yeah. will just work itself out. That's not how it works at all. You, mm-hmm. It's a constant thing, and it changes with who you have in the program. Um, it changes, you know, like you said earlier, D3 staffs are very small. Mm-hmm. So I have one assistant. So it changes with who my assistant is. You know, they bring a huge piece of everything we do. So it, it kind of depends on who's in that role um, yeah. and who's, um, who our captains are. So there's been a lot of a lot of change um, throughout the years based on on the makeup of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, this year we have really focused on, and we're we're tr- I'm really trying to move our program into uh, the mindset of regardless of what happens, we are developing leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've put a lot of time and energy into leadership development uh, for our underclassmen. For the upperclassmen and then more specifically for our captains uh, to, to try to you know set up our, our program for the future so that our younger players that we're really talking about leadership with as you know in their first year are, are incredible captains and leaders by the time they're seniors mm-hmm. so that's that's been a big focus on um, for us on, on what we're doing now, now, when you talk about leadership, too, leaders can be, you know, everyone everyone basically who watches basketball watched The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary back in the spring. And Michael Jordan talked about his leadership and he got emotional because, you know, he talked about his leadership style that was criticized because he was super in your face, would punch teammates all or punched a teammate, all, all that stuff, right? And then there's other leaders like uh, Steph Curry who – lead in a completely different way, but they both win championships. So when you're developing these leaders, how are you trying to, you know, encourage your, your players to, as you said, become leaders in their own right and the captains while also balancing like certain that there is no definition of like, this is the only way you have to lead, you know, like you can be successful leading in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, another big thing that we've focused on, um, over the past probably eight months or so is is our um, making sure that we're an inclusive col- culture, um, inclusive team and program. And so we've really been celebrating individuality and mm-hmm. 
really trying to get to know each other better on an individual level. Um, So that has kind of led us to those types of conversations about, I mean, we have some players that are on our team that are really quite quiet and they're never going to be a vocal in your face leader. We have those people that are um, always going to be the team player, optimistic, positive, but they're never going to be that one who's again, holding people accountable and, you know, saying, hey, this isn't good enough, we need to do better. And then we have some of those people who are in your face, and once once they get on the court, like, they yeah. get intense. Um, so we've, we've really tried to work on, one, helping our players learn themselves better and learn their strengths and the ways that they can be effective leaders. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after we kind of get them to understand where their strengths lie and where their um, where they have some weaknesses, then we start talking about it as a team and so that they can understand each other's strengths, weaknesses, how they can utilize, um, uh, you know, everyone's, everyone's strengths and, and yeah. role in, in their, um, in their leadership. So yeah. that's, that's really how we've done it. We, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have, captains but we also have upperclassmen on a leadership council mm-hmm. so we we're we try to give um our students as much opportunity to step into the leadership roles and to make decisions and when if you watch a practice that i run like a lot of it is the players giving each other feedback and yeah. less of me um, stepping in and always saying this is right, this is wrong. We have to go harder. It's it's really a player led team. Yeah, yeah, I yeah I, that all sounds you know really good to me because my favorite team growing up and it still is now the New York Yankees. Fair players, Derek Jeter, guy just showed up le- led by example every single day. The Yankees I, I, fan, I don't know. I might have to cut this <laughs> off. <laughs> but like, but like showed up Born every red, red Sox. exactly. But like showed up every single day. Did, did his thing, but led by example, and then you know talk about the O four Red Sox, you know the team of idiots, Ortiz and Ramirez, Damon oh, yeah. did it in a completely different way, but they still won multiple World Series titles. Like you can do things very very differently, and and you know speaking of different, during your coaching career, about halfway through your time at Washington, Lee, I, you know I may be getting the the years wrong, so forgive me. The rules of women's college basketball changed like fundamentally changed the games went from being two halves to four quarters you can now advance the ball in certain spots fouls reset you know not minor change of like hey the coaching box is now three inches to the back you know like real significant changes how did you adjust to all of this not just in the middle of your coaching career but also just you've had decades of basketball institutional knowledge that now you have to almost not relearn, but like really adjust to all of the new rules for for the sport. Yeah, I I have to say, like when when we changed the quarters, I was not <laughs> I was not feeling it. I was not happy about it. Um, I was pretty opposed to change at that point in my life and my coaching career. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it, it definitely it just. I was like, gosh, I've got it in my head, like, you know, counting down from 20 in terms of when I want to get sub rotations yeah. in and when you put someone back in who has, you know, two fouls in the, in the first half, right, right. Or, you know, like all of those kind of things that are, were just 
at that point instinctual. And yeah. now it's counting down from 10 and I'm like, oh, geez, okay. So do I try to add this up to make it like it's counting down from 20 mm-hmm. and think the same way? But now we have quarter breaks. Our conference uses media timeouts. Yeah. Um, so navigating that kind of time structure took me took me probably about, I would say, half a season to get get my footing on it. Um, now I now I kind of like the quarters. I guess I'm just used to it at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, the advance the ball piece is really interesting. I yeah. still go back and forth about how I feel about it as a coach. Like, as an X's and O's coach, love it. Yeah. Right? It's fun. You get to, you know, I'm always, just even on the way to games, on the bus, like, I'll be, I'll have my whiteboard out, and I'll be, like, just thinking of different situations and drawing up different different sets that we could run. Um, you know, so in that way, it's, it's really fun yeah. from a coaching standpoint. Um, but, you know, it also means... You know, it used to feel pretty safe if you were up by one or two points yeah. <laughs> with under five seconds left. You're like, gosh, they got to go the length of the floor. Like, that's going to be a hard play. But now when you're moving it up um, into the front court like that, it feels like nothing's safe anymore. Right. <laughs> you know, if it's a one-possession game, you're not safe. Yes. Um, unless it's, you know, I'm, less than a second on yeah, the clock. So. I'm in the camp that the what you guys are doing in the women's game because it's like the rest of the world of basketball is the right way to go about it you know you guys are mm-hmm. in the modern age you know men's college basketball is like using still using the the Motorola Razor flip phone and yeah. everyone else is using the iPhone like you know hey this the iPhone thing is is really cool guys but men's college basketball is like you know no this one just does the job it's nostalgia uh, well, at least they at least they moved the the shot clock down from thirty five to thirty. That Jesus, was, the that was the worst part of it. Yeah, brutal. But but speaking of you know, changing of the times, one of the, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, and you know, it's something that I think about a lot when you're know, following basketball and just sports in general, but especially basketball is this idea of modern basketball. Everyone's talking about. It. I'm guilty of it myself of everyone's talking about modern game the modern this the modern that how much pressure or what do you think of as a coach you're seeing the game evolve and you're seeing all these different things happening in the game do you feel pressure or somehow this like need to keep up with the game as it's going on like i don't know how much you like do like do you use a lot of advanced stats are you trying to trying all these different things that are the, what people are saying is like the modern part of the game or where the game is going. Like, how do you deal with just like, cause the game is changing all the time. H- how do you deal with like, do we stick with what's working and like the, the, like the things that have led us to be successful or are you always like, Hey, we have to keep up with, with the changing of the game. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think I necessarily, for me, I don't look at it on that broad of a scale. I mm-hmm. look at it, within my program and within the players that I have. So Mm -hmm. about um, three years ago, I pretty much scrapped what we were doing offensively. Like I had, I was a coach that had a a fairly thick playbook, a lot of sets. um, And I, I just realized that I, I had graduated players that that worked for, but I brought in players that um, 
what I like to say, I went through a transformation here where it was, I was recruiting really smart women who also played basketball, mm-hmm. and now I'm recruiting basketball players who are smart. Yeah. So there's a big difference in terms of how they approach the game. Like I have, I now have athletes that are instinctual that like can make reads and they don't need structure mm-hmm. as much. So about three years ago, I threw out my playbook and I said, all right, I'm going to, we're going to talk more concepts mm-hmm. and we're going to, you guys play and we're just going to kind of open up the floor and let you play. And it was terrifying because I was letting up a lot of control. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it fits, it fits our team and um, it fits the players that I have. And, and it is more of kind of the modern style of the game, mm-hmm. you know, like just higher scoring, um, more individual play coming out, you know, shining through, like yeah. the giving, giving players the opportunity to isolate someone and, and take them one-on-one a little bit more than than we would have in the past. Um, so in that way, definitely have tried to broaden what we do and how we teach, you know, I lean on my assistant a lot in terms of like, I had, I had a first year this year, we've done a ton of individual workouts and mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? I think she would be really good with the Euro. Yeah. Like she needs to learn the Euro stuff, but I don't think I can teach it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I can teach it in, in theory, but I can't, because like, yeah. I, personally can't do it mm-hmm. <laughs> so i leaned on my assistant and she and she worked with her and, and now she has this beautiful euro step that's great um so i i definitely i think that's something i'm going to continue to do is lean on my younger assistant coaches right and say like where do we need to push where do yeah. we need to go? where do we need to change um because i still have some old stuff ingrained in me yeah <laughs> i i know needs to needs to change at times so and i know you know we're 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 approaching the the end here but my last big uh my last big question before we get to some fun fast ones at the end is you've been coaching for you know a decade plus now how do you watch the game of basketball when 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 you're at home and, and you're sitting on on the couch and you have an nba game on a WNBA division one men's woman whatever it is high school game can you just sit and watch basketball as a fan the way the way that I can would be to be like, oh wow, LeBron, like that's awesome, like the way that a fan does, or is that coaching part of your brain always on where you're rewinding to check out the play Brad Stevens ran on a ball advancement, or uh, Gino put in this specific zone tweak and you're checking it out, rewinding and jotting it down? Like, can you sit and watch a game? with the fan brain on or is that coaching part always, you know, spinning in, in like the back of your mind? Um, I, I can do both. I can okay. shut it off sometimes and just watch and enjoy and, and kind of, I would say distracted watch, mm-hmm. you know, not fully paying attention, just kind of enjoying the big moments. Yeah. Not so sometimes I have to do that because, I just need a break, yeah. but I still love basketball. Right. Um, but there, there are definitely times and it's when it really kicks in is anytime we get down to end of game situations, mm-hmm. then I, I can't help but, but see what people are running, what, right. what decisions people are making, especially in the, when I'm watching women's college ball, mm-hmm. um, 
because of the changes that we talked about earlier and how yeah. people manage the timeouts and advance the ball, not advance the ball, um, call a timeout, don't call a timeout, you know, try to attack in transition versus set yeah. something up. Um, what are they running? Yeah, that's that's when it really kicks in. Um, but sometimes I can't let the coaches brain kick in because I get too frustrated with how <laughs> they like film a game. Yeah. You know, like when I when when they're running an out of bounds set, I want to see the whole court. But right. Mostly they they will zoom in on either someone they're talking about or the inbounder, and yeah. you can't see what happens until the ball gets entered, and that just drives me absolutely crazy. So if I if I'm casual fan mode, then I don't care. But if I'm <laughs> If I'm watching it as the coach, that drives me crazy. Yeah, you, yeah, you kind of want the the all twenty two football camera, which is like the one right behind the quarterbacks, yeah. so that they could see uh, everything. Yeah, and yes. that's yes, I always want to be able to see it all. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure you're the first coach who has said that that you can really sit and enjoy a game as as a fan. So so that's that's pretty impressive. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> So, so Coach Clancy, I really, really appreciate uh, all the time. I have five rapid-fire questions uh, to wrap up the podcast. All right. I'm ready. All right. Number one, what is your biggest pet peeve as a coach? Uh, false hustle. And what is false hustle? So you'll see it a lot, and I'm picturing one of my players right now. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, where you, you make this lunging attempt to get a steal that you know you had no chance to get yeah. so that you don't have to finish out the defensive possession. Uh-huh. Like one of those kind of plays. Um, you know, just times where it looks, it looks to the casual fan like you're working really hard, but the coach in me is like, you're just like – that was wasted. Why yeah. did you do that? <laughs> yeah, I always, I always tease one of my, you know, teammates from from high school. We would rewatch the games during the the quarantine. We were super, super bored. You know, there was one time a ball was so far out of bounds. You know, didn't just bounce on the line, but bounced again, and then he dove for it. It's like, what are you doing, man? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that that kind of play for sure. <laughs> uh, favorite drill to run as a coach. Um. Gosh, at this point, we just play a lot. But um, one, so one of my favorites was uh, is a closeout drill that I stole from Bates' men's team. Coach we got there early. Um, we got there early for a game, uh, and they were still practicing, and they yeah. were doing this like continuous closeout drill um, where you have someone closing out on the ball, and then you have a help defender, and you swing the ball real really quickly, and and you're just going back and forth and um i don't know i just loved it because it worked on on the defensive skill and communication it was mm-hmm. super high energy fast-paced drill you could do it for like two three minutes um and get a lot out of it so we still do that to this day and okay. here we call it the clancy closeout drill <laughs> uh, so i guess that one's probably my my own <laughs> personal favorite do you have any pre-game superstitions Um, that I want to share, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm hoping that some of this will change because, uh, you know, coaches 
this year have gone casual style and not yeah. like dressing up on the sidelines. Um, but it, it's just always been a thing where I, you know, I go home, I get dressed for the game, try to make myself look nice and, and blast music and just sing and dance and kind of just get a lot of energy out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I kind of always do before I, before I come to the gym. But I'm hoping that we don't have to dress up <laughs> in the future and I can just listen to music wherever yeah. I want to listen to music too. Do you have any uh, coaching uh, idols in in the way of if they're doing a talk, you know, if pandemic, everything's on Zoom, if they're doing a coaching talk, you're making sure that, that you're there or you're making sure that, hey, I'm TiVoing this this game of uh, this this coach so, so I can watch their team play. Do you have any coaching idols like that yeah um i mean my my go-to when i was starting out is um john wooden Uh, Mm -hmm. anything that he had he had written and everything was was something that i would just soak up um now uh there are several women in the game that i really respect and admire um on the d3 level adrian scheibels is um someone that I really respect and Mm -hmm. and if she's if she's talking I'm gonna listen she's done an incredible job with her program not just on the court but off the court um and then at the D1 level Tara Vanderveer at uh Stanford um Don Staley and Courtney Banghart Mm -hmm. at UNC um I worked uh Courtney's camps when she was at Princeton and she is uh phenomenal coach and just <laughs> someone that I was really impressed with so if any of those people are talking I'm trying to make room in my calendar to listen because um, between those four women you got some of the best basketball and leadership minds that I can think of and my last question here coach we talked a little bit about the rule changes forced upon you but if you could change one rule about college basketball what would you change You know, I think at this point I would I would uh take timeouts away from coaches. Okay. I think there are too many timeouts. Yeah. Especially once and the instant replays involved, yeah. Oh yeah, well and yeah. You don't need any timeouts. <laughs> like any out of bounds call, they're going to the monitor. That's a free yeah, timeout. Yeah. You, you don't I need mean, any. That's the thing with the D three level, right? We don't we don't usually use the <laughs> we don't usually have a monitor to yeah. do replays, so we don't have those added timeouts. I hate watching that on on TV. I think if they want to continue to use that, they should limit the time um, that it can be reviewed. Yeah, um, but I do wonder yeah, though. Yeah, I think I think coaches just I and my younger coaches yeah. self would absolutely be going crazy hearing (laughs) me say this but like i just think we're trying to control too much yeah um that we would be better served if if we had less time out i i do wonder that that's a good answer i don't i haven't heard that one yet i i do wonder though because coaches are planners they prepare for any good and bad possible situation if you know the coaches who do have the luxury of playing with the monitors if they do drills where it's a close play out of bounds and they, they work on the, the finger pointing thing for all the players and like yelling like, Hey, look at it. Look, you know, video, video. Uh, Cause like it's, it's a skill. There's some players who are great at it and some teams who always get it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Duke um, men's basketball. Shout out. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure some work on that, yeah. <laughs> so, so Coach, I really appreciate all the time. As always, on the Double Double, we give the last word to our guests. Is there anything you want to say or shout out to uh, the great people of uh, Lexington, Virginia? if I have any last words of wisdom I just hope everyone (laughs) stays um, safe and healthy and I I hope to see (laughs) things get back to at least somewhat normal uh, on the other side of this pandemic yes totally agree coach really appreciate all the time and hopefully we'll be out of the red zone soon and you guys will be able to take the court this year yeah fingers crossed (laughs) if you like this podcast you can find us on iTunes Spotify or wherever your podcast subscribe rate and review five stars would be much much appreciated also follow us on twitter at dbl underscore dbl podcast we'll be back next week till then take care and make it a great day